Welcome to the Real Estate Asia podcast, where industry leaders discuss emerging trends and business models, their upcoming developments, and how the real estate industry is evolving. And now here's your host, Tim Charlton. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Real Estate Asia podcast. Today, we will be having an exclusive interview with Knight Frank Singapore. And in this interview, we will be discussing their outlook for Singapore's real estate market. Joining me today is Leonard Tay. He's the head of research at Knight Frank Singapore. Well, welcome, Leonard. Hi, Tim. Thanks for having me. Terrific. Now, Leonard provides real estate market research and advisory service to clients and has over 10 years' experience in the real estate industry, primarily in the areas of cross-sector market research, consultancy advisory, and tenancy administration. Now, with that said, let's kick off with our first question. Now, Leonard, according to your study, prime non-landed residential segment registered sales amounting to... 919 million in the last half of last year, and that was an increase. What does this mean for the residential sector going forward in 2021? Well, Tim, when referring to prime residential property in Singapore, we generally define this as non-landed private residential units as having a floor area greater than or equal to 2,500 square feet. And these traditionally fall in the prime areas of districts 9, 10, and 11, as well as the CBD areas and the Central Sub District 4. Even though sales volume increased in the second half of 2020, unlike many other cities in the Asia-Pacific, prices of such prime homes in Singapore were, you know, relatively unchanged. The prices for these top-tier homes, typically in the core central region, where most of the top-tier stuff is located, contracted by a slight 0.2% annually in 2020. Now, this might seem a bit off when compared to what the newspapers in Singapore have been reporting throughout the whole year last year. You know, when there was healthy demand for private homes during the pandemic, overall prices of the entire private residential market increased by 2.2% in 2020. But much of the activity was in the mid-market as well as the mass market, not so much the prime market. So not so much the luxury class of private homes. There are, two re- there are two reasons. The first being the prolonged and ongoing travel measures that restricted potential foreign investors interested in purchasing homes in Singapore. And the second reason um, was this lack of new launches in the um, top tier class of homes in Singapore. So when taken together, would-be buyers um, only had the secondary market to find luxury homes in, and many sat on the sidelines thinking that, well, with the ongoing pandemic, they would have the luxury of time to wait out until travel uh, restrictions were eased. And, um, you know, since prices really in this class of property did not really increase, um, so they had the luxury of time. But nevertheless, even in the prime residential market, when we look deeper into ultra-prime transactions in Singapore, this means residential transactions that are more than US 25 million. There was a trebling from five units sold in 2019 to 14 in 2020, where the average value of each of these sales was more than US 31 million. These sales would comprise mainly good class bungalows as well as luxury penthouses. So, you know, 23 good class bungalows were sold in 2020 despite the pandemic and the recession. 
Now, let's look at the luxury home sales for 2021 forecast. Investable properties, you know, demand is moderated comparatively to more affordable price points. What do you think is going to happen going forward? It's not so much that prices luxury homes have moderated. It's just that prices in this class of residences kind of stayed flat throughout the whole year 2020 uh, in the midst of all the recession and the pandemic. Again, the main reason for that is the lack of new launches in the core central region. In 2021, the year of expected economic recovery, there are more launches of new projects in this location in the CCR. For example, Midtown Modern and Irwell Hill Residences, just to name a couple, that have been launched. And more new launches are expected in the prime locations, such as One Burnham. And because of this, healthy price growth in the luxury homes can be expected in 2021. Over a longer time horizon, Singapore is positioning itself as a hub for technology as well as a centre for wealth management. Strategically located in Asia, about six hours flying time to almost every major city in the Asia-Pacific, including Australia, Singapore attracts corporates as well as private wealth. Singapore, I think, was ranked second close behind uh, Switzerland in Deloitte's assessment of international wealth management centres and is seen by many as the preferred wealth hub. So there is no surprise that you know, the number of family offices in Singapore increased fivefold between 2017 and 20, uh, 2019. We expect this trend to continue going forward. Pro-business environment fostered by Singapore's government has attracted all these global technology companies that are expanding. And it has also proven serendipitously beneficial for Singapore that geopolitical tensions in the region and around the world have made the Republic a desirable choice, especially for Chinese tech giants. And among the traditional finance and business services, Singapore's enhanced reputation as a stable location for in a volatile world also attracts C-suite and upper management from multinational firms to increasingly choose to be based in Singapore. So given the combination of all these factors, the luxury market, I feel, can only grow to provide for the housing and investment needs of individuals, families and executives carried on the wave of these two twin drivers, being corporate tech setups and private wealth into Singapore. And of course, we've seen a lot of the Chinese big tech giants say they want to put 3,000 staff into Singapore. Obviously, a lot of those local, but, but some flying in as well. Now, what's your view, therefore, on uh, demand of foreigners buying uh, properties in Singapore? The proportion of foreign home buyers did in fact fall to 17.4% in 2020. This was a 4.2 percentage point uh, drop compared to 2019 when the proportion of foreign home buyers was 21.6%. So in the first, however, in the first three months of 2020, this proportion still remains pretty low, about 17%. And the lack of foreign home buyers is due to still the current restrictions still in place. Nevertheless, based on inquiries, there are foreign home buyers waiting to cross the border and they're just waiting on the sidelines to purchase luxury properties in various parts of Singapore once it is safe to do so. 
not only is Singapore a traditional safe haven for investment, especially private homes, but this reputation has become even more enhanced by the way the Singapore government controlled community spread of the virus, as well as the use of the reserves to finance the economy throughout the recession. So according to Knight Frank's Wealth Report 2021, the number of ultra-high net worth individuals, these are individuals with US 30 million net worth inclusive of their primary residence, this grew in 2020, despite the recession, increasing 10.2% from 2019. In tandem with Singapore's attractiveness among family officers, it was also observed that both foreign as well as local home buyers were looking at penthouse units or units, you know, large units with more than 3,000 square feet. So with the limited availability of newly launched penthouses, penthouses in the resale market were pretty much sought after by ultra high net worth individuals who place greater priority on quality and living spaces. Of course, the uh, most high profile penthouse was the one that was bought by uh, Mr. Dyson at the vacuum cleaner company and reported that he bought it for 100 million and sold it for 70 million. What can you tell us about those ultra luxury penthouses, any any other colourful details that you can think about? So now with more new launches being put in the block, at least in the last few weeks and going forward in the next few months, there will be more new product, new penthouse product for home buyers, especially in the ultra high net worth to choose from. In addition to the vast variety of stock in the resale market, I think it was towards the end of March, Eden at Draycott, all 20 units, and each of these units were all penthouse material. Yeah, bought by Chinese buyers. I think it was split into two or three separate sales, but it was mainly from the same group of Chinese buyers that bought the whole project lock, stock and barrel. Interesting. So do you think the developers therefore in the Singapore market are going to be trying to find ways to make more than one penthouse or maybe make a first penthouse, a sub-penthouse that maybe has a bigger balcony? or Because you, can you only have one penthouse per building? Are there ways around that? I don't think this will become a trend at the moment, even though for the most, many home buyers are still buying average size units. It's just that in the last three months, more are looking towards larger size units and especially foreign buyers based on the inquiries that we've been getting. So while it's unlikely that developers will put new penthouse units on the block, the existing stock of from new launches as well as the resale market we'll see pretty much more interesting transactions of these large size units. And what are the prices of these penthouses going for? If you can give us a sort of a range and if you can think of any specific examples might be interesting. Well, it depends largely on which location you buy. But for example, I think a, a penthouse unit at Midtown Modern was sold and that was in excess of $4,000 Singapore dollars per square foot. And how big was that in total? Do we know the total sales price on that? So Midtown Modern, which launched in late March, just recently, um, so that's about a month ago, there was a penthouse unit that was about 3,520 square feet that sold for $14.8 million. 
So penthouses are all the rage for the, for the, for the foreign buyers. That's a, a good sign that the big bosses and the wealth owners want to move into Singapore, and that's a, a good sign for the economy because presumably they're going to be bringing their businesses in and employing people and, and spending money. Yep. Now on to the uh, rather more boring subject of office rentals and office space. Um, it's probably no surprise that office rentals were down 9.5% last year. What is your outlook for that as people start getting back to the office and companies clearly in Singapore, from what we've been hearing, are definitely being urged to go back to work at a 75% level of staff? Prime grade office rents in Raffles Place, and this is right smack in the CBD, contracted 10.2% in 2020 overall. However, right now we see that these rental declines are starting to ease, generally due to short-term renewals as tenants adopt a wait-and-see approach until the economic outlook becomes a bit more certain and to appraise uh, the manner in which they would occupy office space in a post-pandemic era. And these early signs are also shown in the first three months of this year. So there, there are some green shoots of optimism in the office market. In the first quarter, 2021, prime grade office rents in Raffles Place and Marina Bay, while still continuing to decline, it fell only by a moderate 1% quarter-on-quarter to $10.06 per square foot per month. The downward pressure on rents was nullified by pretty healthy occupancy levels at about 94.2% for prime offices in the Raffles Place precinct. So it seems that despite the pandemic and the recession, office occupancies are holding up. And also, despite the rise of pre-termination space or shadow space or secondary space, office space, that was kind of creeping up throughout 2020, we see that this number is starting to ease also. And given the, you know, the tentatively improving economy, pre-termination space is expected to taper off and start to fall this year, 2021. So the current issue uh, in the office market right now that's playing itself out is restructuring. This restructuring started, you know, when there was mass work from home arrangements due to the enforcement of the circuit breaker in uh, April 2020. This is Singapore's version of a lockdown. The jury is kind of out whether corporates will adopt work from home practices permanently and to what extent. Nevertheless, some companies like the banks, for example, are cutting down on office space as more of their workers can work from home on rotation. At the same time, technology firms, tech companies are taking up more space as they find the need for face-to-face -face problem solving and co collaboration to be critical in their work processes. So despite the enforced period of remote working uh, last year, business leaders are also increasingly cognizant that you know, productivity from working in the office can be higher as critical face-to-face -face interactions facilitate better outcomes. So even as telecommuting winds down and the government has now allowed more to return to the office and work from home is no longer a default state, we think that the balance of time spent working from home is expected to decrease and stabilize around 15 to 25% of an average employee's work week, depending on the nature of the industry and the worker's profile, of course. The need for office space still remains central for functions where co-mingling is paramount for workplace productivity. 
So between the banks reducing space and the technology firms taking up space, there should come this new balance that keeps office occupancies at least around 85% island-wide. Yeah, finding some stability between the 85 to 90% level. Yeah, you know, in Australia here where I am at the moment and there's, there's sort of no COVID, so the office workers are coming back to the office. One big thing that they're telling me, and this is a very recent trend, is that the clients are now asking to come and have meetings to discuss the projects that they're all working on. And some of the key workers are still in remote work mode in a nice area of Australia, like a Byron Bay by the beach. But the clients are now saying, let's have a meeting next week at four o'clock. And they say, yeah, let's schedule a Zoom. The clients who are often government departments say, no, no, we want to come in face to face. There's four of us from our side. We have a lot of issues. It's safe to do so. We want to sit down. So people often think it's just a company in their own internal processes. But often, often clients and interactions with other companies needs to happen face to face as well. I think that's been a little bit forgotten in this debate about whether we can work from home or remote forever. Yeah, I think there is some preference shown towards working face-to-face, especially meeting with external parties. Those companies that encourage work from home or work from anywhere, I think they are more apt to do that if there are you know, activity monitoring software of functions within individual workers' computers. So I've heard that certain companies where they know exactly how much input, how much time, what kind of activity individual workers are doing on their computers, regardless of location, they are more inclined to be more liberal in letting uh, workers work from home. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Now, are there any other interesting studies or recent research you'd like to share about the Singapore real estate market and any trends you're seeing? Well, this is still baking in the oven at the moment, but we are preparing the launch of a retail sentiment survey. So in the last few months or so, we've surveyed several retailers in in Singapore and how the pandemic as well as the recession has affected them and in what ways they are coping and what's their wish list, you know, perhaps for some government support, how they hope the, the retail landscape would evolve. And I think some of the conclusions are going to be pretty interesting and telling and would sort of give a sign of how the retail market is evolving, changing, especially with the introduction of digitalization as complementary to brick and mortar retail. Yeah, so watch that space for this retail sentiment survey report that will be out pretty soon. We will do. And look, while we've got you here, The topic that all Singaporeans like to talk about is on block. For those who aren't in Singapore, it just means a collective sale when people who are in an apartment building, usually an older one, think, hey, what if we could all group together and sell our apartment to a developer who will redevelop the site? So uh, everybody in Singapore with these older apartments is always waiting to see what is developer appetite. And you have some views, don't you, Leonard, on what the developers did or didn't do last year and what they may mean for on blocks for this year and next year. Okay, so quite naturally in 2020, last year, developers did not really pick up new land site, um, sites for development into condominiums and so on. And rightly so, you know, everyone was restrained, conservative, pessimists. There was this whole cloud of pessimism all around. So nobody wanted to spend millions on uh, development sites. But that has left one year without accumulating the raw material needed for putting up new residential projects. So in 2021, and perhaps next year, they will see some pickup in the on-block market, 
where developers will have to pick up some more material as the unsold stock or sellable stock is dwindling down. But it's not a total fairy tale, to be honest, because there is a certain limit to the appetites that developers have at the moment. And I think the sweet spot right now is perhaps a site costing around, with a land price around 200 million Singapore dollars, where you can put something like about 200 new units on that kind of land. Yeah, that's probably the sweet spot at the moment. Okay, terrific. Well, a good, a good overview there on, on what's happening in Singapore. If you were an investor, Leonard, and I'm going to put you on the spot here, where do you think it's best to try and put your money? Some uh, retail space, some office space, or some residential property? Well, although this segment of the market is not really open to most Singaporeans, I guess you can buy by way of through REITs, uh, through the Real Estate Investment Trust that are listed on the Singapore Exchange. So I think REITs that have a very high content of data centers and logistics space, that would be a good long-term uh, investment with stable returns, at least with what with tech companies and Singapore attracting that kind of growth driver. Um, you know, all these tech companies coming to Singapore expecting to branch out into the region where at least in Southeast Asia, there is still a middle-class growth story. Leonard, thank you very much for your insights today. Thanks very much, Tim. Thank you for listening. Subscribe to our channel on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcast. For more information, check out realestateasia.com.